I'm here with Sam Adler-Bell. He's a senior associate at the Century Foundation, which is a think tank in New York City. And he's also a writer. You might have seen his work at The Intercept, The Nation, The New Republic, among many other publications. And you'll notice him from the pages of Commonweal. He's written two brilliant pieces for us, one of which was maybe a little over a year ago on wealth managers and the 1%. But most recently, in our first October issue, he published a long book review about Jonah Goldberg's new book, or recent book, I should say, The Suicide of the West. And we're going to start by talking about that, but hopefully we'll range widely. And well, so welcome, Sam. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, no, thank you for thank you for joining us. This review you published for us, it's a little over 3,000 words. I mean, it was a substantial treatment of this book. So just to begin and to give listeners a sense of who Jonah Goldberg is and what the, maybe the core idea of the book is. Give us some background in that sense. Who's Jonah Goldberg? What was this book really about? So Jonah Goldberg is a leader of what we might call the Never Trump conservative movement. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's probably like a contributing editor at National Review. Yeah, he's had a long association with National Review, Yeah, uh, including a podcast he does for them, right? right? The Remnant. The Remnant podcast, that's right. And we can get to that yeah. in a moment. But so certainly... Jonah is seen as kind of a avatar of the never-Trump right, the right that conceives of itself as kind of preserving the traditions of, like, the Buckleyite conservative movement. This book is very much in that vein. The central argument, it's, it's a book arguing against the tribalism that he sees as ascendant on the left and the right in our politics. So it's against Trumpian nationalism and, and tribalism, but also against what he sees as the tribalism of the left, which he kind of associates with socialist um, instincts and other communitarian economics and the social justice warrior, quote unquote, instinct on the left. The subtitle of this book, it's uh, an improbably long or elaborately subtitled book, as you put it in your review. So main title, Suicide of the West, subtitle, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. So those things are what Jonah Goldberg sees as the basic threats to what he thinks of as the great inheritance of the liberal capitalist tradition in America. And he stretches that tradition back to John Locke and then moves forward to the American Revolution as the sort of universalizing of the principles that John Locke articulated in the English context. For Goldberg, the danger of this moment is that we've lost a kind of gratitude for the inheritance and the improbability of that inheritance in the sense that, like, we're very lucky to have liberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. He follows very closely the work of Deirdre McCloskey, who's an economic historian at Harvard, I believe. And she, I don't think Goldberg would dispute this, but she's a much more sophisticated thinker than he is. Yeah. But she is sort of a, a proponent of the thesis that there is this incredible, what Goldberg calls a miracle. She has a different word for it. The miracle, capital M. Capital right? M, capital yeah. T, capital M, the miracle Goldberg refers to, which is the sort of improbable confluence of political, philosophical, and cultural factors that create the liberal tradition at a particular moment. What Goldberg sees in Trump, perhaps in Bernie Sanders, in the modern Democratic Party, in the far right and the far left, is this kind of forgetting and hostility to 
this inheritance that we should be so grateful for, which has produced, I mean, in, in his view and in Deirdre McCloskey's view and many other, you know, self-understood classical liberals, has created, like, unprecedented wealth and development and progress. Um, right. So I think one way to further flesh out his argument, which is if he's arguing to preserve this kind of precious inheritance, the, to preserve the miracle, how does he identify the reasons people are now rebelling against it? You mentioned at one point that he views liberal capitalism as kind of imposing hard disciplines on us, mm-hmm. that, that all our instincts, kind of our, our evolutionary heritage are, is geared toward the group, towards you know, viewing government as in terms not appropriate to it, whether the analogies are like the family. At one point, you say, Obama's not your dad. Trump is not, you know, the person who's going to slay your enemies. Mm -hmm. So how does he, why is there so much dissatisfaction right now if actually we've been gifted kind of unprecedented prosperity? Why are we so ungrateful for it right now? Well, from Goldberg's perspective, he, he he's often says, and I think he says this multiple times in the book, that in the family, for example, in in our in our communities, we actually are all socialists. We're we're communitarians. We operate on the principle of to each according to their needs, from each according to their ability. I mean, if you have a special needs child or a disabled child of some sort, you're not going to treat them give them less resources than you give to your child who's more self-sufficient. And so, but his argument is that the the danger of what he calls romantic thinking, which he stretches back to Rousseau, the danger of romantic thinking is this aspiration to transfer that communitarian impulse that we all have as a natural kind of genetic and evolutionary inheritance to governance. And that, he says, is what leads us to tyranny. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. To put it mildly. Yeah. And is there a reason that that's spiking now? Because one of the things we can talk about this more as we go along, but it seems like both in his language and in the language you use in the review, like we're living in a, a populist moment. Yeah. So it's telling that it's not just that like Trump happened, yeah. but it's also that at the same time, Bernie Sanders happened, yeah. and all these self-described socialists are now running for office, um, mostly in the Democratic Party, but even uh, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, like it's, it's sort of on the both the left and the right, there are these dissatisfactions emerging. And does he have any, why is that happening now rather than even 50 years ago? Well, and he might not have a great answer. Well, like, I mean... I, I don't think he has a great answer. I mean, I've been very, I've been being very generous to Goldberg right. in this discussion so far. Well, we can, and, we can become think, more critical now. <laughs> I think that I, I think that I was very generous in the review, and we've talked about this a lot. I think that there's a lot of benefit in writing and, and engaging with work that you fundamentally disagree with in good faith. I think that maybe one of the myopic aspects of his perspective is that he doesn't have a particularly good explanation why this is happening now. And I think that he would agree that there's a crisis of faith in liberalism and liberal capitalism. I guess, I mean, Goldberg has, Goldberg is very infatuated with Schumpeter, seemingly like newly infatuated with Mm -hmm. Schumpeter. And for him, this is Joseph Schumpeter, the uh, sort of political economists, uh, sort of most Hungarian, famous, I think. Yeah, like most famous in the like mid twentieth century. Yeah, right. Yeah, just as an aside, it seems clear that part of what Jonah Goldberg is trying to do with this book, this very long, very elaborately subtitled and very heavily 
and noted book is established himself as a, as a very serious thinker in the conservative tradition. I think Jonah Goldberg is a, a savvy and smart thinker. He's not an intellectual heavyweight. <laughs> and this book, as opposed to his other books, which in some ways were sort of, I mean, he wrote a book called Liberal Fascism, which was very much kind of a, a troll on the right. on, on liberals. Hitler was a vegetarian <laughs> there, you know, yeah. and, and look, who, look who today's vegetarians are. Exactly. Yeah. It's more or less like <laughs> a slightly higher, more historically literate version of what Dinesh D'Souza is doing now. Right. But this book is his effort to say, no, look, I'm, a, I, I'm thinking deeply, engaging deeply with the conservative tradition. And I think he does that to some degree. But so his interest in Schumpeter, this is sort of one of his explanations for why we're in this populist moment where people have lost gratitude for our mm-hmm. um, great inheritance, which is that Schumpeter has this idea that there's a priestly caste of intellectuals, in effect, people like us, who have, in the, as a consequence of capitalist growth and capitalist abundance, there's now a sort of bourgeois class of people who have nothing to do but think and write, and they don't actually have a particularly important role as they might have in a traditional society where religious clerical work was so fundamental to the maintenance of order. And so as a result, they do this kind of Nietzschean resentment thing where mm-hmm. they write uh-huh. against the existing order to preserve yeah. their own influence. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, a, I mean, Schumpeter is kind of an inversion of Marx. And I think mm-hmm. that Goldberg is sympathetic to this, which is that it's not that capitalism creates its gravediggers in the form of an increasingly ameliorated working class. It creates its gravediggers in, in an increasingly idle intellectual right. class, mm-hmm. which doesn't have a role in society and which therefore sublimates its uselessness into critiques of the existing social right. order. So he borrows that from Schumpeter. And that, I mean, if you were to be super generous, maybe that would explain some of the percolating on the left against capitalism or kind of the rise of socialism, which, you know, I mean, we're both lefties in New York City, mm-hmm. we, we all know like the, you know, the kind of reasonably well-off Brooklynite who also right. like, is a, a DSA member. Yeah, there's a caricature of this. And, and maybe, again, not entirely accurately, but maybe it captures some of that or in his perspective, it might. But does he have an explanation for Trump then? This might be also a good way to talk about conservatism more. But like whatever else you want to say about Trumpism, it's not the result of ungrateful intellectuals who, in their idleness, are now turning against the system that's given them unprecedented It's an anti-intellectual right? movement, so it's certainly yeah. not. I mean, I think that one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that we should take seriously, to some degree, the intellectual and philosophical and, in some ways, political disagreements that are taking place in the right right now. Hmm. I mean, I think that there's a tendency amongst people on the left to treat those disagreements as theater and as insignificant. It's certainly true that both people inside the Trump administration and people like Jonah Goldberg, who are opposed to the Trump administration, more or less support the fundamental tenets of the Republican agenda. And so mm-hmm. like the supposed ideological rift is not as significant as they would have us believe. And of course, in the actual world, n- some 90% of uh, registered Republicans support Trump. So that's not, really, that's not really active. But at the same time, in the intellectual world of the right, there is this conflict, right, between mm-hmm. people who, for example, Patrick Deneen, who you know. <laughs> right, my, my old teacher. <laughs> um, who who uh, are representative of a sort of rising 
illiberal or at least liberal critical conservative right and of course even more more vociferously the the folks behind the Claremont Review of Books and the and the right. uh, Journal of American Affairs and the what was it was called it was originally the Journal of American right. Greatness right yeah um, and these are folks who believe that liberalism is you know destroying our society yeah. and then there's a competing side which is with Goldberg and his fellow many of his fellow editors in the National Review who wrote their big issue about ne- uh, you know never vote for Trump before the election mm-hmm. who are saying. No, the problem is not liberalism itself or classical liberalism in the sense of, you know, open markets and a investment in individual. The problem is a, uh, a abandonment of those principles or ingratitude for those principles. And so I think that, you know, to some degree, the people, the, the former group, the, the people who are associated with, who are more Trump-aligned, mm-hmm who are more sympathetic to maybe like the best version of the, or the most clearly articulated version of the Bannonite, uh, Steve Bannonite line, they have a better explanation for what happened, why Trump was elected, which is that an enormous number of people actually are dissatisfied with the liberal order. And they didn't get that way because they went to a class at Vassar uh, with a Marxist professor who told them not to care about liberalism. (laughs) Right. Um, But rather that liberalism has, I mean, and if you listen, if you, if you read, you know, this is where I get in trouble, but I think if you read some of Trump's speeches from the end of his campaign, mm-hmm. obviously it's all id for him. And it's, and I think we can always overstate this. People often overstate the amount of savviness that Trump has in adopting right. particular views. But in those speeches, he does talk about the working class. He talks about the forgotten people. Yeah. And he talks about the fact that um, there does seem to be a very small class of people who are benefiting disproportionately from yeah, globalization totally. and yeah. from you know capitalism as it exists today. Well, so uh, maybe to summarize some of this, someone like Bannon and in a strange way, maybe even Trump, like did tell a story about sort of political economy and why people who maybe live in areas that are now, I I mean, the white working class stuff has been overdone in terms of explaining Trump's win. But there are sort of the industrial heartland is not thriving, we might say, right? There are economically depressed areas. And someone like Goldberg doesn't seem to really have a story about how that happened or what a, what a, a kind of more constructive response might be. Whereas, uh, I mean, Trump, I mean, as you know, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. The county where I grew up voted 72% for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I can say that when he was campaigning, whatever else he was saying about Mexicans and building the wall and sort of stoking racial resentment, he also showed up at the Altoona Convention Center, right? Uh, Which I can't remember the last time a presidential candidate has done that. And flat out said, like, you're being ripped off. I'm bringing your jobs back. And, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it wasn't I, I actually wasn't surprised that so many people around where I grew up voted for him. And when I would go back and visit the number of yard signs I saw, it really there was a kind of palpable excitement for him that I hadn't seen, at least mm-hmm. in my adult lifetime, for a presidential candidate. And it seems like, yeah, that Goldberg doesn't really have a 
a particularly uh, savvy response to that? Or, well, or, a, or is it like, wh- again, why are people... He has a response that is in some ways aligned with the response of sort of people on the center left, which is that there's a tribalist instinct at work. And of course, okay. there is a tribalist instinct at work. Yeah. I mean, white people voted for Trump. Yeah. Trump, is a, Trump is the president because white people voted for him mm. enormously. And in fact, white people who... As we, as we now call them, white people who didn't, do not have a college degree mm-hmm. voted for him in higher numbers than they had previously voted for other Republican candidates. Yeah. So, of course, there's a tribalist aspect to this. Right. And his argument that that's partially what happened or in significant mm-hmm. degree what happened is, is correct. And that's probably why he has enjoyed some amount of he, – he's been a, right. a, a welcome voice in some liberal context. He was on you know, The Daily Show and, and called mm-hmm. – you know, uh, one of the good ones um, of conservative intellectuals. Yeah, but I guess, I mean, we, you and I talk about this a lot. I think that the the danger of Trumpism right when he was elected was that he actually would continue to articulate something like a welfare chauvinist perspective. Yeah. Uh, a, Bannon's really, you know, vision of how the Republican Party should be, which is pro-worker, anti-immigrant, more or less white nationalist, racist, but very much invested in improving the lot of white people who feel for both legitimate economic reasons and mm-hmm. as significantly for you know, racist ideological reasons disenfranchised by the, the right. present moment. Yeah. If Trump had gone into office and had both the intellectual resilience and the political canny the political canny to actually to implement an agenda you know for example i mean we we talk about this a lot is if he had actually done infrastructure first right right? an actual trillion dollar infrastructure bill bernie would have voted it for it liz warren would have voted for it yeah it would have put thousands of people back to work it would have improved the genuinely crumbling infrastructure we have right but he he couldn't do it because he's He's not smart enough, or at least not and politically this, savvy enough. This and, conflict within the Republican yeah. Party is real. The traditionally conservative wing of the party, which people like Jonah right. Goldberg see themselves as leaders of, um, and, and politicians like Paul Ryan would be right. representative of. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, those people still do more. They control, legis- you know, at the legislative level, yeah. the party. The fact that they no longer really have a constituency for their set of policies, yeah. which are kind of you know, plutocratic, open market, free movement of tr- free trade. The fact they don't have a constituency for their – or visible constituency for their agenda doesn't mean that they don't still have power in the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were able to block or and or put some fetters on Trump's instincts, which were probably in the long run for the right – <laughs> more concerning to me and a better uh, strategy. I mean he ended up hiring so many people from – from the banking industry to help run his administration. Yeah. But I feel, yeah. Like, I feel like we might be getting a little off track. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. We can, we can reel it in. Well, so that's, you know, we've talked about the right, at least some of the fault lines on the right, and where Jonah Goldberg fits into that. One of the ways you can read your review is as a defense of populism. Mm-hmm. You call it an idiom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not even a mood, as Goldberg calls it, but it's an idiom. I wonder if you could say more about that. Like, or, or maybe even parse kind of good populism from bad populism. Uh, right. I would say that my review is a defense of mass politics. 
mm-hmm. not necessarily of populism as such, because I because as you say, I think populism is an idiom. It's a way of talking about politics. Mm-hmm. You know, populism is a is a political discourse in which you identify a we and you identify a them. You identify the people that we are, whether that's we the American people, we the working class, we the white people, or whatever else, and then a them, um, which could be the racial other, it could be the capitalists, it could be the bosses, it could be anyone else. And so populism is a way of creating like a political uh, unity and constituency around a sense of shared community and shared grievance or shared anger towards a particular other who is perceived as causing pain and destruction to the, right. to the group. Um, so that's not something that I think – I don't think populism is something that we can identif- define as universally in every instance good or bad. Right. Um, the instinct towards community can have positive and negative impacts. And I think that the defense of mass politics is some, something slightly different, which for me is just that the idea that any of the victories of the underclasses or uh, the disenfranchised, mm-hmm. the marginalized, the racially othered, that any of the victories that you know the, the, the broad have-nots have been able to achieve in America, all of them have been achieved by mass politics. Right? Right. They've been achieved, achieved by building very strategic constituencies using their particular power in relation to the market, in the case of strikes, the labor movement, or very savvily using their relationship to society in order to achieve victories. They're not something that are that are possible or preordained if you only believe that political conflict takes place in conversation, in discourse. And so what my main, ultimately I found my main argument with Goldberg to be was that he believed that in effect, the liberal, the great liberal tradition is one in which we can have our political arguments in this kind of imminent plane in which ideal values and arguments play out uh, mm-hmm. between people who are somehow equally positioned to make those arguments. But that's never been the case. I mean, something that we've talked about before, too, is the idea that conservatives look out into the world and see a world that they decide is pretty good, equal right. enough, pluralist enough, and imagine that somehow that world was achieved without massive political upheaval, um, revolutionary politics, mass politics. Right. Well, this might be an interesting further comment to make about the right, this fear or suspicion of, of mass movements. And this is something that, like, Corey Robin would say is sort of definitional of conservative politics, which is that uh, it's always the defense of like existing hierarchies against movements that want to tear down those hierarchies in some way or, or make society more equitable. And is this kind of Goldberg almost unwittingly reprising that particular move that conservatives make, that, that kind of that there's an insurgent movement from below that's expressing some dissatisfaction with the status quo and pushing back on it? Is it a sort of – where does it come from? Is it a fear of disorder is it a just you know a defense of privilege? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what's yeah you know because and now as you say a lot of conservatives look back and say well like of course I was for this I would have been for the civil rights movement right or of course I was for women getting getting the right to vote or right. of course I don't want to dismantle social security or well maybe they don't say that <laughs> but, uh, you know like what we think of as you know the, the women's movement New Deal 
civil rights, all those things kind of – once they're actually achieved, mm. conservatives you know, often make peace with them, at least in some fashion. But at the time, they never, right. they never were really for them. Well, uh, I think – I think you might be in better position to psychologize the, the, the conservative movement than I, I am. But I think that, yeah, obviously there's a temperamental aspect to it. Yeah. Um, the sense of upheaval, the cha- changing norms, shifting hierarchies or the destruction of hierarchies is just kind of instinctively and, con- and, and, and temperamentally discomforting. And also, of course, I mean, we're – you know, I'm like a bad Marxist, but I'm still a Marxist of some sort. And <laughs> – you know, people are motivated by ideological impulses, by the, the by the by incent, by their economic mm-hmm. interests and their their in- incentives to preserve their positions in power. Mm-hmm. So obviously, that's a huge part of what happens with conservatism. I mean, yeah. Corey Robin is an incredible thinker, and I think that his his rethinking of the conservative intellectual tradition is very compelling. I think that he's very influential on me, mm-hmm. and I also think that. I also think that I need to be inclined as a thinker to read uh, conservative thinkers in good faith and think that they're saying what they're saying because they believe them, even if they're mm-hmm. ideologically, you know, if those opinions they believe because of their position in society. Yeah. And so I try to do that. I mean, I think that part of the way to articulate what's going on in Goldberg's book, what's going on in our political movement is moment is dissatisfaction with like a liberal consensus. Right. And that – Well, maybe we should just stop because I, I think okay. in terms of – what we talk about going forward, it might be useful to kind of define what we mean by liberal consensus because sure. one of the strange things about the way we talk about politics now is that liberal, especially in the United States, means something specific. Mm. There's kind of the liberal tradition that does go back to Hobbes and Locke, Montesquieu, others. There's liberal as it's used in European politics, which generally means kind of free market mm-hmm. or almost classical liberal and then the United States, if you say someone's really liberal, you mean they're kind right. of ostensibly very left-wing. Right. But I think by liberal consensus, you mean something like, well, more or less capitalism, mm-hmm. first of all. Uh, like it's liberals who have kind of given up on social – or people have given up on – vaguely left of center people have given up on something like social democracy or democratic socialism and want to sort of tinker – with capitalism. Yeah. I think that's about the best we can do. I mean, I would say um, that just to, I, I think social democracy is consistent with liberalism. I think that, I do too. I think yeah. that the, I think that, yeah, it's confusing to talk about liberalism in, the, mm-hmm. in America <laughs> where we've yeah. confused all these terms. Yeah. Um, but by liberal consensus, what would you say is a, a quick and easy definition uh, of that? More or less that a free market system is, is the best we can hope for that we've tried mm-hmm. more, planned economies and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so, so in the economy, uh, lib- liberal markets, markets that mm-hmm. are free for the most part with some amount of inter- – if it's social democratic liberalism, then you know, some amount of intervention to ensure like more or less egalitarian outcomes to some degree. And, and I would say in the, in the political realm, it means you know, at least the, the principle of equal rights and you – know, equal access to the political to, – to engaging in political – the political sphere, democracy, right. uh-huh. more or less. Yeah. And, and sort of a mood of sort of general moderation about political and economic questions. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's not even just – by liberal consensus, it often means, you know, people urge caution. Well, don't ask for too much too soon. Mm-hmm. At least that seems to be the way it, it works out practically. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'd say that like one of the problems is that 
Yeah, people mean so many different things by liberalism. So if you yeah. take the the two con- the sort of intellectual constituencies that we've been talking about on the right, on the one side you have the illiberal or liberal suspicious right that might be represented in its most articulate form by Patrick Deneen. And then on the other side you have the classical liberals who are trying to defend the tradition of liberal capitalism um, as they perceive it to have been bestowed mm-hmm. by... Locke and Smith and these other figures. And I think the problem is that they both, you know, it's not wrong to, a, to, to view the conflict as one between l- liberalism and illiberalism, but both of them misunderstand what liberalism is. I mean, I think that one of the things that you hear people like Jonah Goldberg do is do this kind of hemming and hawing and running in place where they say, well, yes, of course, liberalism had its mistakes. You know, we had liberalism countenanced slavery for a while and the subjugation of women um, and Jim Crow and all of these things. But like those were aberrant. Those are aberrations on the way to the fulfillment of liberalism's promises. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a mistake. As a, as a historian, I mean, as a leftist, I think we have a responsibility to think about liberalism dialectically. So mm-hmm. what that means is like the things that were contradictions in liberalism shouldn't be you know, smudged out of the history of liberalism. They need right. to be understood as informing the development of this concept. And so the fact that liberalism at some point meant, you know, stated all men are created equal and also allowed for the persistence of involuntary servitude means that that's something we have to understand about liberalism. Right. Um, and, that, and that reactions to that were changed the nature of liberalism. Right. There is, you know, political movements in reaction to that and philosophical arguments against it had a sort of antithetical response to that, to that thesis and created something that is different, that is what liberalism yeah. is later. On the, on the sort of anti-liberal right, we have this idea that liberalism is an ideology of failure and submission and mm-hmm. surrender to the forces of basically the other. Mm-hmm. It's a Western tradition which needs, which creates the seeds for the demise right. of the West. I mean, there's the line that uh, a liberal is someone unwilling to take their own side in a fight. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And Deneen uh, writes in his book that liberalism has failed not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. It yeah. has failed because it has succeeded. And so that's a, that's a vision of what liberalism is that's also saying that like the way that liberalism was articulated when it first was articulated, was a totalizing order that has persisted over time and created mm-hmm. these outcomes, you know, which is also absurd from the perspective yeah. of a historian. Yeah. Well, one thing that might, might be worth touching on here is that in your review, you, you criticized Goldberg for kind of an idealist view of history, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you were getting at here, that, that the contradictions in liberalism were, were not simply overcome like you said, the discrepancy between saying all men are created equal and then, you know, chattel slavery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, continuing on for, for decades more, Jim Crow beyond that. And it wasn't just the concept of equality as a term or as an mm-hmm. idea that eventually overcame those discrepancies, but they actually had to be mobilized. The, the, the discrepancies had to be mobilized against and actually fought against, right. whether that is in a literal sense in, say, the Civil War or right. mass politics of some kind to get right. women the right to vote or to get civil rights or uh, whatever example you want to use. Yeah. And I think that's one interesting parallel between 
the kind of anti-liberal right someone like Deneen and someone like Goldberg is in both cases they're using an idealist version of history you might mm-hmm. say yeah uh, that's that's not attuned to well power yeah. discrepancies in power yeah. and and how those might be rectified right well I know that's something that we d- that we agree about is that like potentially the uh, the key constitutive myopia of liberalism is it's it's inadequate contemplation of power, how mm-hmm. people differently situated in a society have different access to the mm-hmm. rights it supposedly guarantees. And so, yeah, I think that's a big thing that's wrong with both these sides of the debate. And I think that, yes, I think that it, one way to put it would be to say that liberalism has required um, a, a variety of politics that doesn't look all that much like liberal politics to achieve mm-hmm. the guarantees that it supposedly, um, yeah. you know, valorizes, that it guaranteed from the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Goldberg is terrified of the idea of, of, of crowds, of people gathering yeah. together and being engaged in mass action of a sort that, like, engages their their feelings, their emotion. Um, mm-hmm. this, this sort of collective action is something that uh, he feels is deeply illiberal because right. it's your, you're subsuming your individual identity and priorities in the in the in the figure of the crowd but of course he also i think would say that uh, the, the achievements of the of the civil rights movement are very valuable he wouldn't <laughs> right, object right. to that but there's right. no civil rights movement without mass politics right. and so there's something people like goldberg tend to see liberalism as the gradual achievement of its original guarantees mm-hmm. um, and that the tools for achieving the teleological end of liberalism as uh, as true equality were already were always already present mm-hmm. um, in liberalism itself as a philosophy yeah but i don't think that's true yeah i think that liberalism requires or in order to achieve the ends that liberalism supposedly guarantees something in excess of liberalism has had to intervene to make right. that possible and that that doesn't mean those aren't anti-liberal movements, but that liberalism it isn't a total system. It's something it's – an, it's mm-hmm. a set of philosophical principles. And if we think about it, as I said, if we think about it dialectically, the intervention of these other antithetical movements or ideas, it creates the synthesis that we enjoy right. now. Well, that might be a good segue into talking about kind of where your review ends, mm. which is sort of a, a call for socialism or the way the review ends is, is it's, it's saying Goldberg proposes sort of a return mm-hmm. uh, or, or a renewed appreciation for the ideals of liberal capitalism. Mm-hmm. And you sort of critique that from the left and defend sort of a populist left and even go further, maybe to talk about, we've touched on this a little bit, but that you know, the the right way to think about liberalism right now is how to actually make the promises that right now are in the form of ideological fictions, substantive realities. And mm-hmm. that will mean a kind of left politics, a left mass politics, left populism, mm-hmm. aiming towards something closer to democratic socialism. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a point in which a lot of people on the left would disagree with me because I think there's, I mean... I think liberalism is a, a valuable starting point for certain kinds of politics. And I think that the most generous thing you can say about liberalism is that if you take its principles seriously, then it demands egalitarian economics in order mm. to achieve its uh, supposed 
right. goals. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've said, I've written a bunch of times that I think that leftists like myself think about liberal rights and guarantees as in aspirational terms. Mm-hmm. We don't think that they exist. I don't think that universal, for example, privacy exists or, or universal free speech, the right to free speech doesn't exist universally in the sense that you might imagine because the more money you have, the more speech you have. The more, yeah. the more money you have, the more privacy you have, the ability to, to keep yourself secluded and separate. But that the best sort of ideas on the left think of those things as worthy goals, that we should try to create a society in which people would have much more comparable ability to engage in the political process, much more comparable ability to have their voices heard. If that's the goal of liberalism, that means that liberalism requires this kind of massive redistribution of wealth um, and power. And so that's where I end up. And I think that the, the socialist left has that to offer, and it's a, it's different from the critique of liberalism that the illiberal right is offering, right. which is that liberalism is a sham, and it doesn't deliver on its promises, and therefore it should be thrown out in exchange. Um, we should welcome some kind of illiberal authoritarian nationalism in which we don't need to provide equal opportunity to minorities, racial, sexual, gender, etc. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot more to say about that. I mean, it's, I think that something that Samuel Moyne has smartly yeah. identified in Deneen is the idea that he's very indebted to Marx in a certain way. There's a yeah. sort of crass Marxism that the liberal right has embraced, which is the idea articulated by Marx in the, on the Jewish question, which is that liberalism is, is a sham that only serves the interests of the people in power. And there's insight in that, but it's a misreading of Marx to say that what Marx means is get rid of liberalism. <laughs> Marx right. welcomed the bourgeois revolutions, right? He was supporting mm-hmm. them because it created the conditions in which something like a socialist revolution was possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the failure of the right on both sides is to think of liberalism as a static philosophy that doesn't change in mm-hmm. response to social mm-hmm. movements. It doesn't yeah. create the change in response to different mm-hmm. so changing social conditions. Yeah. Well, maybe to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. We've been going on and about liberalism. I know. I feel like I've been very theoretical. No, we, well, we both have. It's, uh, but one of the interesting things about Goldberg's book is that it was a bestseller. I mean, it was, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, I mean, some of this is, I mean, as we know, uh, right-wingers buy books. Uh, I mean, for all we know, AEI bought you know, 10,000 copies of this. I mean, I mean, I'm, but nevertheless, it indicates some kind of widespread interest in, in these ideas. Yeah. But as we've kind of discussed, what's curious about that is that it doesn't, there really is no constituency for this book other than like centrist Democrats who want people like Goldberg to be their main political enemies on the right mm-hmm. or the people they debate and discuss with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and given that, you know, the, the Trumpification of the Republican Party, it's clearly not speaking for, like, the, the, the conservative base. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the ultimate significance of a book like this that, that gets widespread attention but doesn't seem to be speaking for much of a, a discernible constituency in, in U.S. politics right now? Like, well, like, how do we understand that? I think it speaks to and is appealing to a constituency that maybe tends to 
buy a lot of books about <laughs> politics. I mean, I think that like the the appeal to the center right and the center left is you know potentially a good way to sell this kind of book because mm-hmm. it's flattering to both of their impulses. I mean, it's flattering to the mm-hmm. left, to the liberal or center mm-hmm. center left, um, because it says that you know the prob the reason that, that, that Trump doesn't have or the ascendant populist right is really just some kind of uh, psychological phenomenon. You know, yeah. it's the phenomenon of people res- re- reverting back to this, their sort of evolutionary heritage of, of tribalism, which is insufficient, but is, but is reassuring if you think that Hillary Clinton's program was sufficiently compelling to everybody in the yeah. absence of some kind of, you know, yeah. great psychological delusion yeah. on the part of the public. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it seems like it's a, a book that it diagnoses the problem without really demanding people rethink yeah. much of their baseline assumptions well, about Well, I think American it misdiagnoses politics. the problem. Right, yeah. right. And it, and it is kind of, if you can locate the problem in people's psyches rather than in any structural or yeah. uh, other material set of circumstances that might need to be changed, yeah. it's, it's a, it, it is kind of flattering to their instincts and yeah. priors in that sense. Yeah, um, I mean, part of the problem is that we're in a moment where it seems like if you acknowledge that there are forces besides the moral iniquity, besides moral iniquity for why people voted for Trump or vote for authoritarians anywhere, that that means that you endorse authoritarianism or the <laughs> or Trump mm-hmm. or whoever, whatever figure. But actually, I mean, I think that if we don't think deeply about why authoritarians have appeal and under particular social conditions or particular political mm-hmm. mo- moments, mm-hmm. then those of us who want to do the opposite, you mm-hmm. know, instantiate some kind of very robust democracy, both politically and economically, that we're going to fail because we misunderstand mm-hmm. the moment that we're operating in. Yeah. I guess, too, so, I mean, you and I both have a, lot, a kind of interest in conservatism. We haven't, we've talked about that some. When I think about Goldberg's book, I, I mean, what do you think it says about the future of the right? Because it does seem like there'll have to be whatever happens after Trump. There's not going to be well, maybe there will be a restoration of the status quo ante, right? Yeah. And you can kind of see, even like National Review, it it when Trump was on the verge of getting the nomination, they published their Never Trump mm-hmm. uh, issue. A number of people who were featured in that issue before the general election did, in fact, endorse Trump. Mm-hmm. And now, even more, I would say, yeah. after the election, have come around to some whether it's anti anti Trumpism, right. like kind of begrudgingly supporting him on against some of his critics, or mm-hmm. because it's that question interests me a lot because yeah. I, as someone who's an ex conservative, mm-hmm. you know, I I have a perverse interest in these matters. And even just thinking about the the long-term trajectory of the conservative movement, one of the things I've noticed is that if you read any number of books on the conservative movement, you can read, say, George Nash's The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, 1945 to 19 whatever. It's mm-hmm. gone through different editions. And it's really, mu- really centered around National Review. So the book is really an exposition of the marriage of free market economics, social conservatism, and anti-communism that like was held together in the person of Bill Buckley. Right. And that's like one way you can tell the story of American conservatism mm-hmm. as those ideas coming together and eventually triumphing in the election of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. And then you can read, I think her name is Lisa McGurr, 
I think she wrote a book called like Suburban Warriors, or mm -hmm. something, but kind of like more closer to the ground histories that are a little uglier, you might say. Yeah. What was behind anti-tax revolts? What was right. behind, you know, even the place of the John Birch Society in, in, in you know, conservative politics, mm -hmm. the, the place of the Southern strategy, right. the um, coming into the Republican Party of, of people like Strom Thurmond, right? Kind of a, something, thing, uh, elements of conservatism that are more focused on race. You know, you kind of... The story of conservatism tends to operate on those two levels, mm -hmm. closer to the ground stories that are a little uglier, and then almost like purely intellectual histories. Right. And I think both in a way are true, and that for a long time, there was a kind of marriage between those ideas and sort of right-wing populist politics that, yeah. that played a lot with, with race. The, I mean, the, the, that uh, the Republican Party kind of took over the South. Right. You know, Ronald Reagan beginning his election campaign in Mississippi at a, as a, at a place where there was a, a lynching, right? Like all these little cues and, and they were kind of held together for a while. And I – actually, the first thing I ever wrote about Trump, I, I called it Riding the Trump Tiger, mm -hmm. which is that eventually it's kind of like conservative intellectuals are riding this tiger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they eventually got flipped off of it. Yeah. And now the tiger was right. at their throats. Right. So in terms of like the, the future of the right, I'm – Hmm. I don't think it'll look like what General Goldberg wants it to look like. I don't like, think so either. Just because it's – I think too once some of these ideas are kind of no longer contained or given a more intellectual gloss, mm -hmm. you know, I just don't know how you quite go back yeah. to, to thinking that conservatism just means the Weekly Standard and AEI and National Review. Yeah. And, and there's – what happens next? I don't know what it will look like, but it will probably be – it won't be like what came before. Yeah. Or will people like Jonah Goldberg simply become Democrats? Well, I you was, know, I uh, like, like this say, is a I sort mean, of phenomenon of like kind of, especially among neoconservatives yeah, who Brown. are all for, yeah, like a muscular American interventionism in foreign policy. But, you know, they might be, have called themselves fiscal conservatives at various points or, but their heart's not yeah. really in, <laughs> yeah. their, their heart's not really in uh, like Paul Ryan's program. Yeah, and and they're about well, their norms might and be they're for about Paul Ryan's program, yeah. but they probably don't really care about the cultural conservatism right. aspect. Yeah, that's probably tr truer to the mark. Yeah, uh, but what they really care about is invading foreign countries mm -hmm. and sort of a certain a preservation of a certain international order and America's leadership within that order. Yeah, uh, and it seems like someone like Goldberg might. I mean, he. I think he was more wedded to certain conservative ideas, like economically, than. Mm -hmm. Than others might have been. Yeah, but he's a I'm just more liberal on some yeah. stuff. I mean, he thinks he's really a, a classical liberal, in the sense of so, a variety of libertarianism with some more social yeah. conservatism, traditionalism mixed in. So I reread the the Flight 93 election piece today. Oh, Mike, really, Michael Anton's yeah. uh, piece in anticipation of the election election that was published in the Claremont Review of Books, where he makes the argument for why anybody who's a thoughtful conservative should vote for Trump. He made it pseudonymously, pseudonymously. Right. But, uh, and then ended up being a, a national security official in the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And then when he left, he wrote a New York Times op-ed arguing for the end of birthright citizenship in the Fourth <laughs> right, Amendment. Right. So he's had a great trajectory of his public intellectual career. But, you know, the, the, it was compelling in the sense of him saying, what's wrong with you conservatives who don't see that there's nothing embracing some kind of economic nationalism, protectionism, strong anti-immigration policies, 
mm-hmm. and anti-interventionist policies. That that's 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 where the where that's the moment. That's where we are. You know, yeah. like you might want to believe that your vision of the way uh, traditional conservatives could look can be preserved by voting for Ted Cruz, but that's not where the world is. That's not where we are. That's not where the country is. And what the implication of that is is that there's a principle that is more important in his mind of what constitutes conservatism besides open markets, besides the free movement of people and goods, um, and besides muscular foreign intervention. The principle he seems to be defending is something like traditional order, traditional racial hierarchies, traditional... Well, even traditional racial composition of the citizenry. Right. And in in America that looks, that's a white country and that is invested in the preservation of an idea of what America is, racially, religiously, and otherwise, Mm -hmm. that very much supersedes any of the, like, pieties to open markets that the Paul Ryan uh, part of the Republican Party have been selling for a long time. And I think that the great conflict and discomfort for people like Jonah Goldberg in this moment, and basically since the beginning of the Trump campaign, or since the Mm -hmm. Trump campaign started picking up, is that that seems to be true. I mean, that seems to be true of conservatism as it exists or is manifested in America today. Mm. It seems to be true of the many, many Republican voters who have supported Trump through all of his stuff and all of his stuff, including very much undermining, you know, conservative commitment to free trade, very much undermining, you know, the idea of a conservative as somebody who has high moral character uh, who's 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 very mm-hmm. clearly and and you know expressively and dramatically you know expresses fealty to a religious tradition. You, I, I don't think you could possibly. Yeah. You know, Gold, Jonah Goldberg f- tweeted at some point, "What definition of character could Trump possibly meet?" And I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's no definition of character. But yeah. if character, sort of moral character, commitment to traditional values, is something that is deeply endemic to the conservative tradition, Mm -hmm. then he wouldn't be the president. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in some ways it's, I mean, maybe the the most basic definition of conservatism is a defense and preference for one's own. Mm. That seems to be what we're down to. Yeah. You know, and and one's own defined, you know, mostly in people who look like me or talk like me or, you know, worship like me. Right. Well, that's the great challenge of, it's much easier to make the Bannonite argument for white economic nationalism or welfare so- chauvinism. And that's why people say that, you know, that's why it's much easier to establish a really robust social democracy bordering on democratic socialism in the Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. where they have a, a very, you know, mostly homogenous population. And mm-hmm. in fact, when there are, uh, when there's immigration of some mm-hmm. sort or the, or refugees moving to the countries, it creates social conflict and it, and it, it ignites a lot of racism. I mean, this yeah. Sweden, Swedish elections most recently, the third yeah. place was a far-right racist party, which is to say that the the challenge of multiracial, you know, egalitarian mm-hmm. populism is uh, much greater. It's a, it's a harder path. Yeah. But it's obviously, I think, t- t- to us, the only morally justified one. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I find... Well, interesting and alarming 
is that once – I mean, uh, racial politics in the United States for a, a, a while uh, has operated with a lot of euphemism mm. and, you know, sort of code words that Trump has stripped away. Right. Uh, and one of the things that I found shocking is uh, – I mentioned I was from Pennsylvania, so I'm from the north – Right. We won the Civil War. <laughs> you know, I have no family roots in the South. Mm -hmm. And since Trump, I've had family members talk to me about Confederate statues mm. and like things they never cared about before. Right. Uh, things that were never on the horizon for them as, mm -hmm. as anything to even think about or argue about. And they're now really concerned about the, you know, the, the place of Confederate statues. It's. Yeah. When, when I talk about what might come next on the right, I mean, those are kind, the kinds of things I right. worry about. Or I had a, a, a – my cousin's daughter it talks about the number of like 17-year-old guys in high school who roll into the high school parking lot with like big Confederate flags on mm. their trucks. In Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. Yeah. And it's like that never happened when I was right. in high school, like well now two decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> You know, in the in the same area. Yeah, I mean the, the the rising kind of tide of conservative young activists is is mm -hmm. certainly much more white nationalist. Yeah, um, and there's no reason to think that they're not going to be yeah. continue to be Trumpian in some way. What should the left do? I mean, because in some sense, like one task of the left in this historical moment is to turn discontent, some of which is understandable, mm -hmm. toward noble ends. Yeah. Right. To offer a different answer. People should be upset in many ways. People should be discontented. People's mm -hmm. life prospects aren't what they should be or could be. Yeah. The left has a different answer than the right. Yeah. I mean, I think that what the left can do is acknowledge that the promises of liberalism and liberal capitalism haven't been equitably bestowed. And, you know, a knee-jerk defense of the liberal order as such is, is insufficient. I mean, we ought to be able to say these ideas haven't delivered for everyone. Mm -hmm. And there have been, obviously, I mean, that's also the idiom in which people demanded civil rights for mm -hmm. African Americans. That's the idiom in which people demanded equality for gay people. But we can do the same thing in the context of, you know, massive inequality that continues to mm -hmm. disproportionately affect racial and uh, sexual and gender and minorities, religious minorities. Which is to say that it's not sufficient to say, no, the Hillary Clinton vision of what the Democratic Party ought to be is sufficient and we just need to do it again without Russia screwing yeah, it up. Right, right. Um, we actually have to say, no, that that didn't work, that failed to deliver the society that we want to live in. And so we have to be much more vociferous in our demand for radical redistribution of power and wealth in this country. Because as I said before, I don't think that, I think that's what, this is very generous to liberalism, and I think that some leftists would disagree, but I think that's what liberalism demands. I mean, I think if, if we want to live in a society where we have something like a public square, mm -hmm. which supposedly we already have, but of course we don't. I mean, we mm -hmm. have a square in which people with the right amount of social and economic cap capital are able to have their voices heard. But if we want to actually have a you know, dem democratic public square, then we have to create the conditions in which everybody can participate in politics. Mm -hmm. And that requires 
redistribution. So, you know, hopefully the Democratic <laughs> candidates will make that argument in much more uh, compelling and less yeah. and one, terms. And one thing Democrats need to get better at is once they gain power, using it to improve the conditions for their future victories. Yeah, of course. Uh, that's one thing the right is so much better at than yeah. than the left. When the Republican Party gains power, you know, there's not a, a, a voter ID bill they won't sign, right? Yeah. They'll they'll take this all the way to like you know court level right. adjudication of like what they can get away with uh, in terms of restricting voting rights or requiring IDs or right. uh, you know, and they're you know they use their power to help create an electorate that's more favorable to their ends. And I think one thing Democrats can do precisely to the end you're talking about is, well, using their power to make sure everyone can vote, yeah. has the time to vote, has the, uh, you know, whether that's a, a making election day a national holiday, mm-hmm. whether that's automatic registration mm-hmm. when you turn 18 mm-hmm. or when you get your drive or, you know, a license of some, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever particulars would uh, be required by that. Yeah. That's one thing I would like to see Democrats do more. And it's amazing because the Democrats should be at an enormous advantage when it comes to those kinds of policies because they can say, we believe in democracy, so we want to expand <laughs> right. the franchise. Right. Um, it's both self-interested but, but morally correct. Yeah. What's, in, what's, in, what's interesting is that the Republicans have been, have been able to, to support and achieve in passing anti-democratic policies, which I think is another – indicator of the fact that the, you know, purported investment that we as a country, or especially the white population of this country, has in democracy as mm-hmm. such is not a reality. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why these, the idea that we can achieve the world that we want just by saying, look at what our values are, look at what we say so we have to do that. You have to vote that way because, look, we say that all people are created equal. You know, if, you know, to get kind of, you know, Baroque about this, but, like, if if abolitionists had said, look at what the Constitution just said, look at what the Constitution says, you have to, slaves ought to be free or every person should be treated as a human being. Just, like, let me just tell you that, then that wouldn't have changed anything. There's not a conversation right. that would right. have achieved the more egalitarian end that we want to achieve. In the case of that, it took massive amount of resistance on the part of enslaved people, and and an army invading and the an south. army invading the south. Yeah. Um, in other instances, it's taken different kinds of things. Yeah. Well, we've been at it for a while. That was sort of a downer of a note to end on. So, politically speaking, is there anything that gives you hope right now? Oh, I'm very hopeful. Uh, yeah. And I'm very t- hopeful. Let us end on a note of hope. Jonah Goldberg's wrong. You've destroyed his book in this excellent review. I hope so. We've meandered quite a bit talking about liberalism, conservatism, and other things. But yeah. what, going forward, what, what gives you hope? Well, I think that the younger generations are both extraordinarily diverse and, as far if we believe the polling, extraordinarily, um, you know, interested in and susceptible to radical egalitarian economics. They're not, you know, they're growing up. Obviously, there's an enormous amount of segregation still, but they are they are part of communities in which, you know, the majority of people aren't white necessarily, or at least the people that they see on TV, blah, 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 like 
I am very hopeful that the possibilities for egalitarian multiracial populism will grow and grow. I think that the upcoming election are a big test of that. Like if if young people vote in a much more with much if many more young people vote in the next election, then I'll be even more hopeful. <laughs> but there's reason to be hopeful about the ascendant socialist wing of the Democratic Party and the mm-hmm. increasing power of or at least the increasing visibility of the Democratic Socialists of America, other groups that are committed to redistributive politics and economic egalitarianism. The fact is that the Republican Party has had, you know, multiple opportunities to sort of shift gears in a way that would have strategically benefited their continuing power. Certainly they've done it, as you mentioned, in terms of structural reforms that disenfranchise their opponents or their likely voters, likely people who vote against them. But they haven't done it in terms of sort of structural changes to the ideology of the party. Yeah. After Mitt Romney was lost, they um, said, well, we actually have to change this party so that it's welcoming to immigrants. (laughs) Right. They didn't do that. And even, and much more terrifyingly, when Trump was elected, I think they did have an opportunity at least to stave off the left populist movement by embracing this kind of white economic nationalism that said that real white Americans ought to be have more economic power and ought to be yeah. more equal with people in power. And it was able to vilify people of color who have relative economic power in order to achieve that mm-hmm. ideological end. Luckily, by the grace of God, <laughs> they they failed to embrace that much more treacherous mm-hmm. path. Yeah. So. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's helpful. Yeah. That seems that's more helpful. or less helpful. Yeah. And I, I would just note that one reason I'm hopeful is that evil cannot triumph because it's parasitic on the good. It's a privation. So in Augustinian terms, we know evil will not triumph. So, Well, that's very comforting to me. Uh, <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank you, Matt. <laughs>